Hello and welcome to this author Q&A with John Garth. My co-host today is Professor Gabriel Schenk. And last summer, all three of us were in Oxford at the same time. Gabriel gave me a Inklings walking tour of Oxford and uh, John and I had some pints of beer with his students at the Eagle and Child. And nowhere else but Oxford do you get such a sense of place of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, it was certainly the first time I felt like I had been walking you know, down the same streets he was walking on. And that's what we're here to talk about today is John's new book, The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Places That Inspired Middle Earth. Let's all, yes. Oh yeah, we should have rehearsed this actually. <laughs> there we go. Right, there you go. Matching copies. So uh, Gabriel and I are preceptors at Signum University and John has been a lecturer and will be a lecturer again for us in the fall. We'll talk a little bit more about his class later on. And Gabriel is going to take any of your questions. If you're not familiar with the GoToWebinar uh, interface, on your control panel on the right-hand side, there's a place that says questions. Just click on that and you can type your questions into Gabriel and I'll stop a couple times during this hour so that uh, your questions, we can ask uh, John to answer those directly. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've got any comments on what's be currently being discussed as well, um, please feel free to um, put those in the, the questions box too, and I'll try and pepper them in. Um, you know, we want this to be an interactive uh, session. Um, and perhaps actually we could just test this capability. So perhaps if you could let us know where you're currently based um, so we can get a sense of the place of the room, um, quite appropriate for our topic. It's the worlds of JRR talking and the worlds of Signum University as well. So um, uh, this will, oh, there we go. Uh, okay, so um, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, the Poconos, the Northeast Pennsylvania. Poconos, yeah. um, Poconos, okay, rest on uh, Virginia, Arizona, Alaska, wow, uh, Los Angeles, Minnesota, um, Canada, um, Illinois, so so far, no, no one outside the United States, apart from uh, Canada. Did we have it? Well, we had Canada as well. So no, no, no one outside North America. But well, I, mean, I suppose John and I. <gasps> Mexico. We just had a Mexico. Hello. Oh, and Japan. Um, Japan, uh, Takako. New Jersey. Uh, so Wisconsin. Um, yeah, Mexico. Fantastic. Um, lots of lots of fantastic uh, range there as well. It's amazing that we can all come together into the same room. That's wonderful. All right. Well, Gabriel's going to go draw the curtain over his camera. And, or are you going to stay on camera? Uh, I'll, uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, will, I, will, I will mysteriously fade away into the West, um, but I might come back uh, for, for, for some Q&A. Um, so please do keep on sending your questions and your comments. So I'll, I'll draw a veil for, for now. Great. Well, now it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today writer, editor, and researcher John Garth. He's well known for his ongoing work on J.R.R. Tolkien's life and creativity. His first book, Tolkien and the Great War, won the Mythopoeic Scholarship Award in 2004. His second, Tolkien at Exeter College, was a finalist for the same award in 2015. He has twice won the Tolkien Society Award for Best Article, and he was awarded the Tolkien Society's Outstanding Contribution Award in 2017. As a researcher, writer, and reader, John wants to discover not just the facts, but how it felt to be in that place and time, which is a major impetus of his new book, The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Places That Inspired Middle-Earth, published by Princeton University Press in the United States and in the UK by Francis Lincoln. Uh, 
A further book examining Tolkien's creative life as a response to the crises of his times was begun while John was a fellow of the Black Mountain Institute in Nevada, USA, and it's still in progress. And we're eagerly waiting for that someday to come out. Other publications include chapters in the Blackwell Companion to J.R.R. Tolkien, Catherine McElwain's beautiful Tolkien Maker of Middle-Earth exhibition catalog, and a forthcoming volume in memory of Christopher Tolkien, who we lost this January. Can I, can I just intrude there? Of the, course. The, the way you said it, it sounded as though I was writing the whole volume. It's just a chapter in that volume. It's a chapter, yes. A contribution, in the, sorry. Not reading my own <laughs> notes. Um, John has taught a class on Tolkien's Wars for Signum University, and Gabriel and I have just finished, um, are just finishing this week, the third iteration of that. In the fall, he's going to teach a new class for Signum based on this book, The Worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien. If you're interested in that class, you can just go to signumuniversity.org and find out information how to register for master's degree credit, or you could even audit um, if you're just interested in taking that and you don't want to write any papers. Welcome, John. It's wonderful to see you again. And you. Thank you very much. Actually, I've been seeing you all summer because uh, we've been teaching this class that we have your recorded lectures for. Um, so it's been kind of a time warp to see you then, about five years ago and now. My knee grayer. <laughs> a little bit, but so am I. It's all right. We're all a little bit grayer. Um, when, I, when I see myself, I'm on the... Um, one of the features on the extended edition of the Return of the King DVD. And when I see myself on there, I look about seven. <laughs> you know, that's like, is that like 20 years ago now? That's amazing to me, like 15 or so. It's just crazy. And uh, uh, how young everybody looks. Tom Shippey, I think, is on there and some other folks look a lot younger. Well, let's talk about your new book. What made you come up with the idea for this new book? Well, I, I didn't come up with the idea for it. It was it was actually presented to me, which is rather a wonderful thing, because you know when you when you've got this obsession, and it's quite a productive obsession. So my computer is just full of notes. Um, you, you want some way of making use of it. Obviously, you want to share it with people. Um, and you and you you scratch your head and you don't necessarily think of the most obvious things. I certainly don't. Um, I have a friend who used to be a colleague at the London Evening Standard, and she writes very beautiful looking books about English gardens for a publisher called Francis Lincoln. And she said, my publisher would just love a book about places that inspired Tolkien. And I said, I don't know about that. I don't think that's me, you know. Um, because it just didn't seem very thoroughgoing or serious, you know, it's not, not in the same vein as Tolkien and the Great War. Um, but then I thought about it and I thought, you know, this is a, a it's a very, very popular subject. You, you, you put in to Google places that inspired. And when I did it, Tolkien came up as the autofill immediately. It varies from time to time. You see Harry Potter, you see Game of Thrones, mm. um, but Tolkien's always in there. Uh, and I, I knew that what I'd seen online tends to frustrate me, um, tends to seem very shallow. Um, and I, I thought, well, you know, this deserves 
proper treatment. And it deserves proper treatment. I mean, I, I, I know now how much that's true because I've been through the process of writing the book and it, it unfolded beautifully from that, that first um, idea of my friend Vicky, Vicky Summerlies um, into something that I hadn't really expected it to be. Did you go to all the places that you oh, no. wrote about? No? No, I didn't. Um, and that's partly practical. So, well, I suppose for, first and foremost, it's practical. I, I, I'm not wealthy. I don't get an awful lot of time for travel. Um, I've been to quite a few of them. But one of the key points that uh, occurred to me as I was writing, really, was that often when people have been to places that they believe inspired Tolkien, they're wrong. Um, and I've been to places that I can, I get that feeling, you know, oh gosh, this is so Tolkien-esque. You know, I feel like I'm stepping into Middle Earth. You know, I can, I can visualise as I'm saying this, um, the, the descent from a mountain called Penny Van in the Brecon Beacons in Wales, you know. Um, and yet, there's no evidence Tolkien went to that particular place or to many of the other places. So I feel as though that that's a very misleading gauge for what may have inspired Tolkien. Um, uh, and my my gauges have been different and we can come to that. So I've been to, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Oxford because I studied there for a start. And then uh, latterly, I lived there for six years with my wife and daughter. Um, and I've been there many times since. I've worked for the university on and off. Um, so I know that very well, um, and I know the area reasonably well. So the Rollwright Stones, the um, uh, the White Horse of Uffington, and so on. Um, Birmingham, I've visited Edgbaston, where Tolkien spent his teens. Um, the Oratory, um, the 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 Catholic priestly uh, community there, where his guardian father Francis Morgan lived and worked. I've been in there more recently um doing some research into the Somme battlefields that was that was the first big trip i did and that was for tolkien and the great war so i think i went over there in gosh what was it about 2000 um i've been to east yorkshire where he was posted in 1917 and i I went there with, as I, as I did with the Somme, I went there with contemporary modern maps and, and maps from his era. Um, and when I was in East Yorkshire, I went to the village of Roos, um, which we know is where he took the walk with uh, his, his wife, Edith, um, that inspired the story of Beren and Luthien. Um, and I established from the maps, that there were very few candidates. In fact, there was really only one candidate for a wood um, in that area where, where Edith may have danced among the hemlocks, the, uh, uh, the, the white umbelliford cow parsley or Queen Anne's lace. Um, and it's called uh, Dense Garth, oddly enough. But Garth is actually, it's a, it's a, it's a Yorkshire um, northern piece of dialect English uh, that just means an area a yard, a, an enclosure. Um, and my family is from up north as well. So that's that's why I have that in common with that word. Um, so yeah, I've been to Cannock Chase and Great Hayward. I've been to Warwick Castle and I've been to Cornwall to the Lizard Peninsula where Tolkien spent a very um, uh, crucial 
pivotal um, holiday in 1914. That was right before the First World War. That's right. Yeah, and he was. It was at, when when the war broke out. When when Britain entered the war, he was there, and he was doing these wonderful sketches of um, you know waves battering <laughs> battering the land, full of this you know imagery or the sense of conflict. So I had a question from uh, some of the students in the class this summer, and uh, one of them is, if you had a TARDIS and you could go to any of the places in space or time, uh, which of Tolkien's times and places would you visit? Well, apart from the planets that he mentions in the Notion Club papers. <laughs> if, if you want to go there, that's your, that's your choice. No, I would go to Sarehole and Birmingham as, as they were when Tolkien was young because both of those places are now changed beyond all recognition. So you can still go to Cornwall and, and get a sense of what it was like then. Um, uh, but you, you can't go to Sarehole and see that at all. It's, it's suburbia. Um, and uh, Oxford would be interesting too, because I know that very well now, but, but it's still, it's well-preserved. Uh, I, you know, Tolkien had this, same desire to travel back uh, he, and he mentions it in the lost road he puts it in the mouth of this very autobiographical young man alboin um, the desire to walk in time perhaps as men walk on long roads um, and yes that's i find that deeply moving that idea absolutely to go back in time more more than just place but and, and Birmingham, as I, as I tried to evoke it in the, in the last chapter of the book, um, was a place of uh, in industry, yes, but also arts and crafts and lots of canals. You know, it, it really it, it was a thriving mm -hmm. city uh, of canals uh, which had been built prior to the railways. Um, and I yeah, think that's extremely Right, so that, that view, Tolkien would have seen that view or something very close to it on his walk to school every day. Wow, that's that's beautiful. That's it's very European looking as well. Something maybe straight out of Amsterdam or or Venice as well. Um, have you found outside of England any of these places besides, of course, the the battlefields of the Somme that possibly inspired Middle Earth? Well, I think I think the the, the, the wonderful one really is, is Lauterbrunnen in Switzerland, which is, uh, which is the, the illustration on the cover. Yeah, yeah. it's actually not Rivendell, it's Lauterbrunnen, but, but you just can like see it. Mm -hmm. from that how similar it is to Tolkien's visualizations of Rivendell. Um, and you can see also, you can hear in the names of the, the rivers of Rivendell, Loudwater and Brunnen, that you've got Tolkien unpacking Lauterbrunnen, the name, into these into these uh, evocative uh, names of his own invention. Um, so that's the, that's the key one, and he kept revisiting the Alps in his imagination for the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, I think pretty much every mountain scene seems to owe something to his uh, his memory of that, which just shows, I think. You know, I I, I listen. I love listening to music, um, and I still find that the things that stick most are the things that I was passionate about when I was 
19 or thereabouts you know and i think that that w would happen with tolkien and with landscapes too and he went on this wonderful you know i mean it was a once in a lifetime kind of trip for him hiking trip over several weeks in the swiss alps so uh audience if you have any questions for john i'm going to take a break from my questions in just a minute go ahead and type them into the questions box and gabriel can read those out to us in just a minute but uh, some of uh, the students also wanted to know, outside of Europe, what were Tolkien's inspirations? We often get the idea that he's a very Northwestern European-inspired author, um, the Nordic country and Britain and Ireland, but where else inspired Tolkien? Well, the, the, the Mediterranean South, in the sense of the, you know, the, the classical tradition of Greece and Rome, was, was far more important to Tolkien than he let on, or, or, or than people realize. Um, because he was kind of his comments were reactive. He he had immersed himself as many young, well-educated men of his generation did in Latin and Greek literature. It was it was a major uh, part of the syllabus of his school. Um, and the problem was that by the time he was studying classics at uh, Exeter College, Oxford. Uh, he was bored with it because he immersed himself in it so much. So his switch to um, uh, English language and literature was was partly a reaction against that, but also it was, it was infused with his interest in things as as it had been built up through his understanding of classical literature. So. When he's writing his notes on the old English epic Beowulf, for example, he's noting down Homeric influences in Beowulf, right? And then one of his, he loves this phrase about the ocean's cup, um, which is in, in Beowulf, and it's very Homeric um, from, from the Odyssey. The Odyssey is full of this recurrent kind of imagery. And he, Tolkien writes it into his first poem of Middle-earth about Erendel and Mariner. Erendel sprang up from the ocean's cup. Um, and then beyond that, we've got, well, we've got Africa. Um, and uh, I, I think there we perhaps have Tolkien's very, very faint memories of um, the, the, the African uh, flora coming through in Ithilien. Um, we have, and this was a real surprise to me, thinking about his ocean voyage from Southern Africa at the age of three. Um, to realise that the boat stopped off. I, I found this out by researching um, online, actually, in the Times newspaper archive, um, uh, where his ship, the SS Guelph, stopped. It stopped at Madeira and Tenerife, which are both volcanic islands, mountains rising from the sea, you know. And Tolkien's obsessed with that kind of island. Um, so there's that. With the, uh, the East, very interesting. Tolkien doesn't really write about the East directly. I'm a bit like Gandalf, to the East I go not, right? Um, but uh, what Tolkien did do is he took the medieval tradition that there was a, a paradise in the East and transplanted it to the West. So the, the two trees of Valinor uh, they were inspired, and he said, he said this, this is not me speculating, they were inspired by the trees of the sun and moon that appear in the stories about Alexander the Great. There was a big tradition of oh. legends that sprang up around Alexander the Great in the Middle Ages. 
um, and the trees of the sun and moon um, were a marvel which he asked to see when he was in India um, and they prophesied to him that he would die so Tolkien took not that but he took the idea of the trees and sun and, of, of sun and moon and, and, and moved them into his paradise in the west and I think what he's doing there is his whole mythology is predicated on northwesternness, which is all about the Atlantic. And he's fascinated as he knows those peoples were who lived in that area in ancient times, were fascinated by the mystery of the great ocean and what might lie beyond it. So he, he wanted to, to create a world that lay beyond the great sea. Um, and the East actually offered him some um, some fuel for those ideas. Likewise, to come back to Northwestern Europe um, and, and talk about something else that gets neglected, um, less so now than it used to be, but that's Celtic tradition. Um, so, so my argument in the book is that uh, Tolkien trying to recreate how the Anglo-Saxons for his mythology for England might have imagined um, the elves uh, needed to look to Celtic traditions because there really is nothing surviving in Anglo-Saxon tradition, very little surviving in Norse myth either about elves. There's, there's plenty uh, about elves and fairies in Celtic tradition. So, um, uh, you know, it was a case of having some major gaps that he wanted to fill and rather than just trying to dream them up, um, he would draw on other traditions that fascinated him too. Absolutely, and I want to ask you about a couple of those in a minute, but I want to get some audience questions in here. So we'll bring Gabriel back on and let you read those audience questions. And as if by magic, an extra one has just appeared. Um, so I'll re be reading those out, but I just, I'm so fascinated by this discussion and particularly about the kind of the, the places that Tolkien inspired, uh, inspired Tolkien. One of the, the many things that I really enjoy and appreciate about this book, John, are the appendix appendices. Um, so you know it's a good work about Tolkien when it's got a good a good appendix or two. Um, and there's this wonderful one about William Morris because I always had it in my mind that Iceland and you know Morris and Tolkien were all sort of bound up with this quite confusing quotation uh, when. Um, uh, Tolkien says that Morris uh, sort of inspired the Dead Marshes, and there's a really, really interesting um, sort of response to that from you because you you, you sort of unpick this uh, and I unpick and make the a, a, an argument. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so that's that's a really fascinating thing to look at if, um, if people are interested in the, the William Morris link and exactly what Tolkien meant by that. Um, and an example of how kind of bursting with insight this book is. Um, if I turn to the audience questions, uh, we've got a few coming in. Um, uh, Jonathan Tyler asked a really fascinating question. How did the 1918 flu pandemic affect J.R.R. Tolkien and his family? John wrote a great blog post on his friend Colin Custis, who purportedly died of the 1918 flu, but were there other effects on the Tolkien family? Not, the, not that I'm aware of. Um, I mean, of course, it, it's, it's a much more fascinating question now than it seemed a couple of years ago, last year even. Um, 
you know, I do wonder whether it, it left its impact in the stories of, you know, pestilences in Middle-earth um, and, and notably the, the death of the sister of Turin to Rambar um, in, a, in, a, in a plague, uh, mm. uh, the plague that struck Gondor and, uh, you know, basically brought it to uh, its knees comparative to how it had been. Um, but no, uh, uh, Oxford was definitely affected and I've read, uh, you know, eyewitness descriptions of how people, students would be, or students, maybe soldiers, I forget, uh, who were billeted at the time at the colleges, uh, would, would be dying right on a daily basis at various points. Um, but Tolkien's own connection with that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's really, as you say, it's a really interesting thing to think about now. And uh, I think we have a different knowledge and appreciation of what that flu would have would have felt like to live through. Um, uh, Jennifer asks, um, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered in the researching for this work? Um, yeah, yeah, this takes me back to a story that I've told quite a few times uh, now about Farringdon Folly, which is a tower uh, just near Oxford, 18 miles away. Um, so I, I knew um, from an edition of Tolkien's uh, lectures on Beowulf, edited by Mike Drought, uh, Beowulf and the Critics, that Tolkien's famous little allegory of the tower which he uses to express his frustration with the way that Beowulf scholarship was trending. I knew that that allegory of the tower was not Tolkien's first version of the allegory and that there was a previous version, which was the allegory of the rock garden, right? So, so the, 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 the principle of this allegory is um, a man has finds a collection of rubble, he makes something out of it. And his neighbors, uh, not understanding, um, think that he's misused the, the, these rocks because they have ancient writings on them and things like that. Well, they think they may do. And this was all used to express Tolkien's frustration with the way that Beowulf scholars would look at the poem Beowulf for everything from history to philology to archeology. span but not for story and artistry, right? In Tolkien's allegory or allegories, uh, the artistry is embodied in the, the rock garden, right? An expression of someone's personal eccentricities and aesthetics. Um, and then in the replacement version of that allegory by the tower from which you can see the sea. Now, Tolkien revised that allegory at some point in uh, between 34, 1934 and 1936. Uh, and I discovered by chance uh, about Farringdon Folly, which was a controversial new tower project um, that, that was built very near Oxford um, in 1935 after a one year planning controversy which involved neighbours who did not understand the point of the tower, who did not want it to be built, um, and the fact that it would have a marvellous view. You know, this was one of the, th the key points that was brought out in its defence. 
and you can't see the sea from the top of that tower. Um, mm. But it's a folly, and a folly is precisely what Tolkien is describing in the allegory of the tower. It's a building right. that has no point, no practical purpose. Um, and it struck me that Tolkien would be playing for laughs when he talked about the allegory of the tower because his audience, especially in Oxford, but also in London when he spoke to the British Academy in November 1936 um, about Beowulf, all of these people would have read what was going on with this tower in Oxfordshire, um, or Berkshire as it was then, because it was in the papers, the tower was being built by a famous eccentric. Uh, Lord Berners. So, so that that was that was the delight. The thing that led me to it was even more surprising in a way, or, or just as surprising, which was this painting by Berners of Found and Folly, um, wow. which was published and used by the Shell Oil Company in 1936 for advertising. And this would have been very visible at the time. It was used on the sides of the trucks used to deliver um, gas, petrol, to uh, uh, petrol stations and that just reminds me so much of um the hill hobbiton across the water with the you know the little building at the foreground the windy road up to the up to the hill the buildings around it and you know the general atmosphere too so i i really wonder if tolkien saw that as well yeah that's a gorgeous image as well i wish our advertisements looked that good these days um and jennifer jennifer's quick response from jennifer talking res responding to current events Th thanks so much she says i love it uh, i love it as well um and uh, and we've got a couple of more questions in if that's okay chris um so scott um uh, is uh, saying thinking of the oratory and cardinal john henry newman does saint anne's parish the one the family attended still exist uh, if so was that a place you visited like the oratory as part of your research and can you comment on these spaces as inspirations and impressions uh no i don't know i'm sorry that that, that one's gonna draw a blank fair enough uh, so that that's that's about places in birmingham is that right or not Oxford. If so if we're talking that. about specifically, you know, I can talk about the inspiration of Sarehole, but I can't talk about the inspiration of, of, of that particular mm. um, church. Because uh, when, I mean, I know there's multiple oratories. When you said the oratory, I, my mind goes to the oratory in Oxford, of course. And, right. And, no, I'm talking about I, the oratory in, in Edgebaston in right. Birmingham. Because it didn't talking have a, perhaps a religious experience when he saw an angel and that was I think that was in a church in Oxford um it, do you know was. What it, was in, it was in his local his local catholic church um right was that was that the one in North Oxford might say he sees an angel actually no. I've looked at that passage again it's a, it's a yeah. bit more metaphorical than that but um uh, okay okay well um I'm sure these churches like certainly the ones in Oxford still exist so um uh, you know, it's it's it. I would encourage people to build that into their talking, yeah. walking tour. This is, I mean, this is a, a key point that um, I, I earlier I, I slightly poo pooed the idea of visiting places just to uh, see if they inspired Tolkien. Nonetheless, of course, it's valuable to visit them with an open mind um, mm. and to drink in what you see and ponder it. Um, and that's that's no different, really, from um, reading literature that Tolkien read 
or looking at the current events through which he lived. Um, mm -hmm. You just have to look at them with a, a, a level eye that's balanced between acceptance and skepticism, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Kate, Kate just adds on a little bit more um, to that. The Birmingham Oratory uh, was established by Newman and Father Francis was briefly Newman's secretary before Tolkien's time. That's right. um, yeah, so that's right. So there was a real there was a real connection back to Newman. Right. That's amazing. Um, and Jessica um, has a, a lovely comment, um, so I'll read out the whole thing. Um, she says, this is so wonderful. Please forgive me if this was answered. There's been tech problems here. I live near the Burren in Ireland and have found a house hotel where Tolkien stayed. Did this beautiful lunar-like landscape inspire Tolkien, do you know? From my understanding of Tolkien's movements, it can't have inspired anything in the Lord of the Rings because he didn't visit Ireland early enough. I don't know about the specifics of his journeys or whether he visited the Burren specifically, but in a sense, it's a moot point, um, unless we're going to look at places that appear in Tolkien's post Lord of the Rings writings. But there mm -hmm. you run into another problem, which is that most of the time he is revisiting uh, Silmarillion landscapes, Silmarillion landscapes, uh, which he'd already imagined and described in the 1910s and 20s. So uh, I, th I think um, in terms of place inspirations, by that time, he was mostly full up. That's fair enough. But um, as you say, it's it's wonderful to sort of think about these things as long as we're a bit careful about what, what kind of conclusions we're drawing. Um, so thank you very much, everyone. Um, keep your questions and comments coming in. I'm going to um, draw a curtain over myself again um, and uh, perhaps, perhaps that'll be time for me to come back later. I hope so. I have a couple other questions that I got before the session from some Signum folks. Um, Kat Sass, who is a longtime Signumite um, and a researcher in her own right, uh, wants to know, as a researcher, how does one go about writing a book like this? What is your research process and how do you get access to all those wonderful archives or permission to use the photos that you've used? The, the, this book is just beautiful. So there's full of photos and artwork, gorgeous. Um, this, this goes back to what I was just saying about places. So, so what I do is read. Um, I, I read uh, what Tolkien read, I read about what Tolkien read, um, I read about what life was like when Tolkien was writing, um, and other things, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways of connecting with Tolkien and moving outwards. When I was, when I was trained to be a reporter, our teachers, uh, journalism teachers, would talk about climbing the apple tree and picking all the apples, going up every branch, getting all the apples down. Um, and I kind of do that instinctively now as a, as a trained reporter. Um, so I'm always approaching things with a curious mind and an open mind um, and then and then allowing them to bed down, I suppose. Sometimes I'm struck by something very suddenly and I want to investigate. So I do very thoroughly until I've answered all the questions I can think of and can answer. Um, and sometimes I just let things settle um, and see how they, they, they may lead to something only 
you know, years later. I'm sure there are examples of that in this book, um, which, oh, well, I mean, I, I guess the Farringdon Folly um, is, is a case in point because, because I had read Beowulf and the Critics and the, the Allegory of the, the Rock Garden uh, quite a few years ago now, you know, um, and knowing that helped me think, right, tower being built near Oxford, same time as tower being built in Tolkien's imagination, you know. Um, right. So, Somebody doesn't just make a change like that um, without maybe some impetus behind it. Right, right. So, yeah, it's a case of absorbing thinking, waiting, absorbing thinking, waiting, this, this cyclical thing that can accrue um, insights as, as, you, as you roll along. Um, how do I get access to archives? Well, um, I, I guess patience and persistence. And sometimes it's not that difficult. You know, I, 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 you can get a reader's ticket to the Bodleian Library and as you know, and look at Tolkien's academic papers, um, uh, you probably know about the process of doing that better than I do. I, I had a Bodleian Library uh, reader's ticket for life because I was an Oxford undergraduate. Um, and you know, <laughs> this is a lovely day for me when uh, around, uh, so I, was, I studied at Oxford from uh, 85 to 88. Um, and it wasn't until about 10 years later uh, that I was sitting in my flat in London and thinking, hang on, I, I, that ticket I had, that was for life, wasn't it? And I phoned up the Bodleian and then the, literally the next day I got on the coach, went up there, they renewed my ticket, the new photo, and I was through the door and I was looking at Tolkien's manuscripts. And that was marvellous. So, um, yeah, in a mixture of... of just knocking on doors that will open and knocking on doors that take a lot of patience to open. Um, so there are some things uh, like, you know, the papers, the, the, the letters in Tolkien's family papers that I saw for Tolkien in the Great War um, that I was only allowed to see because I asked very politely and um, persuasively, I suppose. Uh, now, having written Tolkien in the Great War, I suppose that's a calling card for some people. So mm -hmm. so that so doors will open a bit more easily when you've done when you've got a track record. Success builds on success. So you've got some artwork that we don't see very often. The only other place I could find this really unusual uh, Tolkien painting was in the uh, Tolkien Estate website. It's um, in the um, it's in Catherine McElwain's Maker of Middle Earth, uh, Middle Earth, okay, uh, great. Book of the Bodleian uh, catalog. So it's it is actually in print already. Um, it's called uh, To London from, through Oxfordshire and Berkshire, or something along those lines. Um, yeah, from it, London to Oxford through Berkshire, which yeah. looks nothing like that to me. It looks like it's straight out of the Battle of the, the Somme. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's actually showing pollarded trees. So, so trees are pollarded in 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 Britain and other places, no doubt, um, so that browsing animals can't reach the fresh green that, that grows up on the the little branches that sprout up from the the pollarding sort of head height. Um, uh, but it it doesn't necessarily look very pretty <laughs> compared to a, a fully fledged tree. Right. Um, turning now to some of the um, 
personal research, Trevor Brierley wants to know if you found any more information out about the Tolkien family, particularly Mabel, but any of the family tree history that some folks have been doing uh, online, sharing no, that. No, I didn't. Um, I mean, that, that, there, there's, a, um, there's a chap in Poland, uh, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, but let's call him Richard Dzinski. Um, who've done a great deal of research into Tolkien's, uh, the ancestry of the, the Tolkien family itself and pins them down in what is now Poland. Um, my primary urge is to understand what Tolkien understood or was influenced by. Um, so although I actually learned my, I cut my teeth as a researcher on my own family history, and I learned about the patients that you need and, and how to use archives and so on and how to keep proper notes. By doing that, um, I haven't applied that to Tolkien now. I did see when I went to the uh, the French version of the Bodleian ex exhibition at the uh, uh, Bibliothèque Nationale, Nationale in Paris, some sketches by Mabel Tolkien that are exquisite. Nature sketches um, and very much like her sons. So you can see there's a, there's a direct line between the two of them there. Um, and I'd love to learn more about that. Um, and you can also see there's a connection. There was a, there was a hit bestseller in the 19, I think the 1970s in Britain called The Country Diary of an Edwardian Lady. Mm -hmm. Um, which was a, a handwritten, hand-illustrated uh, journal of nature observations. And I discovered latterly that she lived, this, this woman whose name I forget, um, around Birmingham too. And I think that this, that ethos of contact with nature, the craft of drawing, is very much part of uh, the, the genteel society of, of Birmingham of that day, the arts and crafts ethos that um, had come from William Morris and others. Do you think that those of us who were not able to get to Paris for their version of the, the uh, Tolkien exhibit will ever see Mabel's drawings? Well, I, I, I would hope so. I don't see any reason why not, as long as you're patient. You know, this is, this is, the, this is the thing. You know, these things um, can emerge when the time seems right. You know, it's not obviously it's, it's nothing to do with me. It's not up to me. It's up to the Tolkien estate. Um, uh, it's a, it's about timing, maybe. It's about energy. Um, you know, good things come to those who wait. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, now I'm going to ask my own. Um, I'm working on my doctoral dissertation on Tolkien and his Irish sources, and I know that you and I have spoken about this before, but it's in your new book, uh, his encounter with this Norwegian explorer, Friedhof Nansen, and how that all ties into his ideas of, of the mariners that keep popping up in his literature and going west and yeah St Brendan and all of that is all tied up together and tell tell me a bit about how you found all that out how did i how did I start researching that um so Tolkien mentions this book by Nansen in Northern Mists, and it's just a footnote in on fairy stories um the the uh nineteen thirty nine lecture that Tolkien gave um 
and he talks about he Tolkien refers to the, you know, the he makes a connection between this can you can you pronounce the the name of the 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 Irish legendary island that's that looks like High Brazil is that how you pronounce it do you think to me okay, it, that's let's what call it, it High Brazil H Y B R E A S A I L uh, and he compares that with the the the, the real country Brazil. Um, so that first got me uh, aware that that Nansen was a thing on Tolkien's horizon, and this and that this book was. So I I found it online and started dipping into it, and it's just a phenomenal um, compendium of lore, legend, and history that I could see would have fascinated Tolkien. Um, I found. Uh, Later, I, I wrote to Christopher Tolkien and asked him specifically about his father's copy of this book. And Christopher got his son Adam to go up into the attic and dig it out, um, and told me that that it's inscribed 1921. So that's wow. when Tolkien acquired this book. Um, I think Tolkien probably knew of the book earlier than that. It was published in 1911. Um, it was published to a little fanfare, a little controversy. Uh, because, uh, and this is really interesting, Nansen argues that Vinland, where the uh, Norse seafarers supposedly landed, never existed, that it's a, a mythical place. Nansen doesn't contest the idea that Norse seafarers reached the New World. But in fact, the sagas mention four places. Nansen thinks that three of those places are genuine, but that Vinland is not. And the reason he thinks Vinland is not is because it has um, uh, naturally growing vines that just pick grapes and there they are, and wheat that grows by itself. And he says that these are motifs that occur again and again in folklore and myth. Uh, going way, way back prior to the sagas. He thinks they became attached to the sagas in the century or two between the actual uh, voyages west and the writing down of those sagas. And that seems to me to be very, very logical. And I really love to know whether anyone's actually refuted Nansen's point. It doesn't seem to be discussed. In fact, if you read books about, or articles about, um, uh, contemporary views of where Vinland was, they're all talking about the wheat and the vines and what they might mean, um, as if they've never they've never heard of this idea that these are actually just motifs from folklore. Um, one of Tolkien's professors was William Craigie, who so disagreed yeah, with William Craigie was, was Tolkien's professor of, of uh, Old Norse, Old Icelandic, who was teaching him. Uh, one of the Vinland sagas in 1914-15, Torfinn Karlsefni's saga. Um, and Craigie certainly knew about the controversy. Um, uh, I suspect that he would have talked to his students about it as a piece of colour, even if he personally was sceptical about um, uh, Nansen's views. Um, Tolkien's 
Tolkien talks about Vinland in 1914, just, just when he was studying this saga, um, in a paper on the Finnish uh, poem, the Kalevala, where he says, I've got it written down somewhere. It's gone. Um, uh, he says that reading the Kalevala is, uh, makes you feel like Columbus on a new continent or Torfin in Vinland the Good. Um, so it was it was certainly on his his uh, horizon at that time. And then in 1921, the year he bought his copy of uh, Nansen's In Northern Mists, he added a line to that talk about the Kalevala, which is wonderful. The unfortunate existence of America on the other side of a strictly limited Atlantic Ocean is most constantly and vividly present in the imagination now. There are no magic islands in our Western Sea. So Tolkien mourned the existence of America because it had replaced the, the kind of mythical place that Vinland is, was, as in, in Nansen's argument anyway, and that Tolkien tries to provide in Valinor and the islands uh, in between uh, Valinor and Middle-earth. And, and so in your, in your new book, you even talk about how Vinland could make an appearance in Middle-earth as Dorwinian. Right, yeah, so I, I, I've always thought Dorwinian, for a country, if you know, if you know you, uh, the, the most basic word that people learn, I, I, I figured out when I was nine in Elvish, uh, Dor means land, Mordor, Gondor, right? Um, if you know that much, and then you find that there's this place Dorwinion is noted for its wine, you obviously think, well, surely there's a pun in there somewhere. Um, and Tolkien wasn't averse to punning, um, uh, though I wouldn't say he does it all the time by any means. Um, <clears throat> but Dorwinion uh, is, like Vinland, a place that noted for its vines. Um, and Tolkien describes various locations for Dorwinion in Middle-earth. So the famous one, of course, is somewhere down the river running. Um, where the elves of Merc would get their wine from. But he also places it uh, somewhere in the south at one point, and he places it um, in either Eresea, um, the Lonely Isle, or in Valinor itself. And so Darwinian goes all over the place. And I think, I think this may well have been deliberate on Tolkien's part. I, I doubt that he was thinking, oh, I can't quite make my mind up where to put this place. I think he was thinking people believed in marvelous places at points of the compass. We know that. I want to replicate that in my legendarium. And some of these islands also were noted for moving around. Um, did St. Brendan's Island have a fixed place? Did uh, Tirnanog have a fixed place? They were also kind of mobile Right, so so, and in the Silmarillion, you get this a remnant of a very early idea of Tolkien's from the Book of Lost Tales, um, that uh, the elves were ferried across the Great Sea on a moving island. In the Book of Lost Tales, it's Britain, it's England, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, that that seems to be a a, a widespread uh, idea in in Celtic legend. That's great. Let's bring Gabriel back and see if there are any more uh, audience questions. This is your last chance this hour to type things in, but uh, you can always take the class that John will be teaching at Signum in the fall based around his book and ask him all the questions that you want because he's going to be teaching it live. 
And mm -hmm. uh, so if you don't get your question answered today, certainly go to signumuniversity.org and uh, look at our full roster of classes. Gabriel, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think the fall starts pretty soon, sort of beginning of September kind of time. But check the dates of term on, on the Signum website for more information. And we've had some fantastic questions coming in um, whilst you've whilst you've been talking. So um, Kate asks a, a sort of really interesting question. Um, uh, she says, "I have always felt that one of Tolkien's motives for keeping all his drafts and papers was a reaction against the loss of his mother's papers burnt by his aunt. Um, do do you think that there might be something in that?" It sounds very feasible to me. It's not something I've yeah. thought about, um, yeah. but it, you know, I think it's 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 so characteristic of Tolkien. I, I found this with Tolkien in the Great War that he had preserved the letters of of his closest friends uh, in the TCBS, the Tea Club and Barovian Society, um, mm. whereas, as I found sadly they had not or, or their families had not um yeah. so that's that that does show quite an extraordinary extraordinary degree of uh, desire to to preserve things yeah and we we might also be tempted to say uh, talking as an academic was more aware of how valuable things can be in the future but then of course c.s lewis threw everything away um, everything. yeah the, the, the different ways of, of, of being aren't there? um mm -hmm. there is there is one comment from Tolkien somewhere where he says I, I know that I was making up languages um before uh the age of whatever because my mother tore up tore them up <laughs> mm -hmm. so uh, his mother presumably thought these were a waste of time these activities of his um and and got rid of of, of these these papers of, of, of his on you know the 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 ultimate predecessors of quenya and cinderin yeah. um and that that's that's a real shame so i yes i i think he clearly had a, a desire and another reason it occurs to me for that desire to preserve things is that he was homeless strictly speaking um from the, from the death of his mother onwards he kept moving around um so that that would mean that once you did make landfall you would naturally want to uh, build more continuity in yeah 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 makes make, make, makes me think back to those that concept of the the floating islands and the islands that move around something something that lewis was also interested in um and, and there's a kind of related question to this from evan um you must have a fast uh, you must have a vast agglomeration of notes wonderful word how do you manage them all <laughs> um and with deep everything like Tolkien did <laughs> Um, I've got a I've got a reasonably organised um, uh, computer, um, but there are certainly there are certainly folders in there that say to sort, um, and sometimes <laughs> I think I know I've got this somewhere, you know, and it, it may take me quite some time to to figure out where it is. Um, the, the, when I started writing this book, um, the first few weeks of it really was marshalling my own notes um, and also reading up on what other people have written on the subject. <clears throat> Fantastic. 
Um, and then Brenton uh, says, thanks so much for your beautiful book and great discussion, John. Uh, this might be a disingenuous question, but what book are you working on next? Uh, and if you can't say or don't know, perhaps you could tell writers and scholars what book someone should work on, um, but you won't get to. So it's kind of two questions in there. I'll never say that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I need to get back to uh, the book that I call Tolkien's Mirror, which is the one about um, uh, Tolkien's work as a, a reflection of what was going, the crises of his times. Uh, so various uh, draft bits of that have been published in, in collections here and there. Um, uh, so that's one thing. Um, I'd like to bring that to a, a conclusion. Um, and get it out there. Um, I, I've, I've got various other, other, other little projects pootering away in the background and I'd, I'd love to do a book of the letters of, of um, Robert Quilter Gilson of the TCBS and his artwork. Um, so I, I have all of these things photographed um, and I've published a, and delivered um, a paper called A Brief Life in Letters, um, based on his letters, telling, telling the story of his life from school through till his death in, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Mm. Um, but that's strictly, and this is, this is where you run into practical problems, that's strictly not a profitable venture. And unfortunately, I'm tied to, I'm, as, a, as a, a freelance uh, writer and editor, I'm tied to doing things that that I can afford to do. So I don't know when that will happen. Um, it would be a wonderful uh, thing. Perhaps someone in the audience will, you know, it's very connected and can provide a grant or something like that. That would be wonderful to have. Wonderful. We'd all love yeah. to be good. And there's another one. There's another one I've spent a lot of time on, which is, um, which would really be a, a, a scholarly resource rather than um, a, a readable book so much. And that is, um, a chronology of composition, uh, which which tries to provide a, a ready reference idea of what Tolkien was writing when, um, drawing on further research that that I've done um, beyond what's in the history of Middle Earth and wow. similar books. Yeah, wow, that'd be great. Really, really useful. Um, we've we, I know we're coming to, up to the the end of our time, but we've got a couple of questions. If that's okay with both of you. Um, so Scott um, says, uh, I really enjoyed your Worlds of J.R. Tolkien book. Uh, what other texts alongside this book are you considering for the course? <laughs> that's a difficult one. Um, and I, that's an answer I haven't prepared for, unfortunately. So I, I'm going to draw a blank on that. I need to give that some serious, quick thoughts to Yeah. And I, well, we I get expect... volumes of... Uh... Uh, Friedhoff Nansen before class. Yeah, so there, so there are certainly, you know, passages from things like in Northern Mists would be important. Um, mm -hmm. I want to give a sense of, of what, you know, what it feels like to be at the coalface as a researcher. And that involves, you know, things like um, articles from old newspapers, um, uh, archival photographs and things like that. Um, uh, I do want to draw in some material from you know current writing on the landscape and environment because i think tolkien was a pioneer in that regard um so yeah be great and and, and kate sort of asked an add-on question will there be field trips <laughs> <laughs> 
only. <laughs> I think that might be a bit difficult to achieve. Although if yeah. we could all find a magical island in the middle of the Atlantic, that might work. That would that would be great. Yeah. Um, and um, and then the, the last question that we also have a, a few comments, but the last question is how long did it take you to write the new book from the start of your research to publishing it? That's that's a complicated one in the sense that I start some of the research that went into it was originally done for, for Tolkien in the Great War. Nice. Um, strictly speaking, um, it took me about. Well, I started September of what, what year is it now? 2020? I think so. 2018. September of 2018. And uh, we put it to bed um, about 12 months later. Um, and about seven or eight months of that was me researching and writing uh, more, okay. or, more or less full time. Um, uh, the remainder was dealing with the pictures, the layouts and so on, which was tremendously interesting and involving and sometimes frustrating, but ultimately really satisfying. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's 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 resulted in a really beautiful book, but also a book that um, is so kind of engaging to read as well. I, I think that's one of the things I was I was so pleased, so impressed by is that you you could take out the pictures and you would have a much lesser book, but you know the text holds up on its own. Um, you could also take out the text, and the pictures are so kind of useful and beautiful and interesting. Um, so it's almost like two books in one. Um, so it's interesting to hear about kind of the, the, those two sides and how long they, those took. Um, yeah. So Jessica says um, I'm ordering um, I'm ordering the, the book for my birthday in August, and. Um, uh, uh, and Laura says, uh, not a question, but I just wanted to say thank you for the seminar. And please, Mr. Garth, do write another book about the TCBS. Oh, yeah, that would be lovely. <laughs> well, I want to thank everybody for coming and listening today. Again, if you're interested in uh, John Garth's coming uh, class in the fall at Signum or any of our other classes, go to signumuniversity.org. John, thank you so much for being with Thanks. us today. I hope that there's a time in the future when the three of us can all be in Oxford again together and raise a pint in the Eagle and Child before it becomes Absolutely. a hotel. Cheers to that. <laughs> Sorry, my phone's going off. Yeah, but uh, that's absolutely. All right. <laughs> Gabriel and I are actually going to be back next Friday with our Hugo Awards 2020 Best Novel Roundtable, where we talk about all the novels that have been nominated for the Hugo Awards mere hours before the world finds out which book won the awards. So you can go to signumuniversity.org to find uh, registration information for that free seminar as well. And our annual conference, MythMoot, is going to be online this year, held August 6th through 9th. You can find information at the website about that too. Gabriel, mm -hmm. thank you so much for uh, running the, the technology. And John, thank you once again. It was really delightful to speak with well, you thank about you both. your yeah. wonderful yeah. new book. Yeah, lots of thank yous from the, the comments as well. Um, uh, thank you and kind regards from Brazil, the country, not the island, says Douglas, but lots of other thank yous. And so, and, and a huge thank you to you, John, and congratulations on what is an incredible book. And, and, and thank you for, for writing the book. John, Gabriel, and everyone, please be well, be safe, and keep reading. Thank you Bye. very much. Bye-bye, everyone.